Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, it looks like Canada will get some COVID-19 vaccination shots before Christmas, although a very small amount. How will your local pharmacy factor into distributing the COVID-19 vaccination? We'll find out. And has your kid given up STEM courses because they think they're just not smart enough? Experts are suggesting to take another look and maybe give them a shove. And rumors are floating about a possible deal between the U.S. Department of Justice and the Huawei CFO lawyers. Will it happen? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. This weekend, we set up the real Christmas tree. You gotta love the smell of pine. Our house reminds me of the inside of a really clean taxi cab. Yeah. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! You know that tree, that real tree, that real tree there, I'd like to think it smells nicer than a clean cab. At least he said clean cab, uh, taxi cab. Uh, There were problems this morning, though, when we woke up and we realized the tree stand was leaking. Luckily, Daddy had some extra bathtub cocking lying around. Not sure if that works with it all being wet. And it's not, the, you know, the tree stand kind of looks like a badly beaten up bathtub. But other than that, uh, here's, here's fingers crossed. Hopefully we can continue through all this. All right. Thank you for joining us. Great to have you here. Here's what the prime minister had to say at his uh, the news conference that's still going on just a bit earlier. Canada has secured an agreement with Pfizer to begin early delivery of doses of their vaccine candidate. We are now contracted to receive up to 249,000 of our initial doses of Pfizer-BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine in the month of December. Pending Health Canada approval, the first shipment of doses is tracking for delivery next week. Shipments will continue to arrive into 2021 with millions of doses on the way. This will move us forward on our whole timeline of vaccine rollout and is a positive development in getting Canadians protected as soon as possible. All right, that's the Prime Minister speaking earlier at his uh, news conference and saying that uh, last week it was we didn't know really how much we were going to get and they would arrive somewhere between January and uh, March. And I should say we did know we were going to get 6 million doses, enough for 3, uh, three million uh, uh, patients. Uh, now that's bumped up. We're going to see an initial 249,000 uh, before December is out, the uh, Prime Minister said, hopefully by next week. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Brett Belchatz is with us, ER physician, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, Global News Radio medical expert, and with us now. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on this new information uh, coming out this morning that we could see uh, 249,000 doses in Canada by the end of the month, by December, by the middle of this month, actually. I think it's great news. It's certainly something that I think brings a lot of ease to nerves of many people across the country who 
have been wondering when the first shipments of vaccines would actually hit our shores. Now, we all know that our country has made various vaccine agreements with the manufacturers with the most promising vaccines. But what was a big unknown was when the first vaccines would start to actually arrive in Canada and when we would be able to start vaccinating. And, and earlier, we were hearing dates that were early in 2021, which Certainly, it was a good thing to hear, but there was a lot of questions around when in 2021 was it going to be beginning of January, later in the first quarter, et cetera. Uh, obviously, seeing how much case numbers are going up, I think we're all starting to realize that the sooner these start to come in and the sooner we're administering these, uh, the better off we're going to be. And especially with some of the objectives that we've heard to initially vaccinate some of the most high risk communities like long term care residents and long term care workers, especially where we're seeing the greatest number of deaths. I think this can only be seen as excellent news where we can start to have some effect to protect those vulnerable populations in the height of the second wave, which is uh, quite frightening right now. As you mentioned, we were talking last week about January to March, uh, hopefully uh, 6 million doses. Any idea or any thoughts as to why this is happening now? Uh, It it is a relatively small amount, only 249,000 doses and enough for roughly 125,000 people. Um, But any idea as to why this information is coming out now? Well, I think there's been an ongoing discussion would be my guess. Now, I'm not privy to any of these negotiations or discussions between our government and the various manufacturers, but I think there's been, there's been ongoing discussions between governments around the world and the manufacturers of these vaccines. And Canada is up near the top of the list for the vaccines from Pfizer and from Moderna and also for the Oxford vaccine, having committed quite some time ago to, to purchase millions of doses, even before there was certainty that these vaccines would be working. But a lot of the uncertainty has come from uh, a couple of points. One is how quickly are the vaccine manufacturers able to ramp up production of the vaccines? Secondly, how much of their vaccines will be available for international shipments versus dedicated for home markets, understanding that none of these vaccines are produced in Canada. So if we're looking at uh, the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, they're both being produced in other markets that are obviously hungry for their own doses. And I think it's been the product of lots of discussions to say how much is there in total and how much will come to Canada. And I think a lot of negotiation has been involved, and that's why it really has been a moving target. And I would say the fact that there is some now certainty around what might come here in December, I think reflects that there's been some maturing of those discussions and a little bit more certainty from the manufacturers about what they're able to produce and how they're going to allocate it between countries. Um, so talk about the amount, uh, 249,000 doses. That's enough for just under 125,000 people. Your thoughts on that, the, it trickling in the way it is? Well, it, it's obviously a, a very small amount to start. And what we've been looking at is the fact that in the first quarter of the year, we were originally looking to receive about 3 million, uh, enough vaccines for 3 million people to be vaccinated. And That was looked at as enough vaccine uh, to actually cover populations like long-term care residents, long-term care workers, frontline health care workers and first responders. And and that would have taken us out to the end of the first quarter. So when we look at 3 million people being the target number for those populations, this initial set of doses that are coming in December is a very small fraction of that, you know, just over 100,000 doses, 100,000 people's worth of doses is one thirtieth of that overall population that we see as top priority. So it's not going to be massively impactful, but I think the reason why this is such great news is not because we're seeing a massive number coming in December, not because we think that that's going to stem the tide of phase two, but what that says is that 
the taps are starting to open. And uh, one of the biggest worries that we had about vaccines and when they were going to arrive is when would the taps actually begin to open up? Because once they start to open up, there is generally an expectation that manufacturing capacity is only going to get better. The numbers of vaccines are hitting us are only going to get greater and we're going to get more and more coverage. But if we looked at what the plan was, which was only, you know, 3 million people's worth of vaccines coming in the first quarter, uh, there was a big question mark over when in the first quarter that would begin. And obviously every week counts when we're seeing the kinds of case numbers that we see now. So getting this number of vaccines in December, even before the new year, what that says is the taps are open, which means that we're not looking at a big delay for those initial 3 million doses to start getting distributed. This is going to happen almost right away, which is a huge relief, I think, overall for a you know us to all expect that vaccine flow is going to begin now and then continue into the new year. So uh, who, how would you or who would decide who gets those first, who are the first 125,000 roughly? I think it's going to stick with what were the initially targeted population. So I think we're probably going to be directing those towards long-term care residents, so the vulnerable elderly. I think those will be the first people to get it. I think the bigger question mark, and this will be very difficult to decide, will be of all of the long-term care populations across Canada, who will be the ones that will receive the first 120,000 people worth of doses. Uh, I don't have the answers to how we're going to make those decisions. My guess would be that we're going to risk stratify the populations within long-term care based on what we know the risk, risk factors to be. So things like age, comorbidities, et cetera. My, my, if it were up to me, what I would be doing is I would be allocating the doses for the most elderly, those people with underlying respiratory conditions, et cetera, and get them injected into those people first because we know these are the people that are most likely to have a fatal outcome if they come down with this infection. So, uh, and then obviously just equally distributed throughout all of the provinces. I mean, you know, I was going to say, or, or just in hot spots, but there's hot spots right the way across the country. Yeah, it, it is a difficult thing to, to say that you're only going to give it to hotspots because you are right. The hotspots are, are basically everywhere now. Uh, I, I think what you're probably going to want to do for the sake of fairness is, is try to distribute it as equally as possible across the country. That being said, there may be some logistical factors that come into play here. As we know, the Pfizer vaccine needs to be distributed at extremely cold temperatures. And the reality is that there may be parts of the country where we just have not put in place yet the infrastructure to be transporting vaccines at minus 70 degrees, which is what's required to transport this one. So it may also be that where this vaccine is going is just the places where the infrastructure has been put into place in time versus other parts of the country that just aren't ready for it. Do you anticipate, uh, doctor, that supply issues will be uh, will continue to be an issue through 2021, or do you think this will uh, work itself out in the first half of the year? I think what we're going to see is we're going to see tight supply for at least the first quarter. You know, if we look at what was projected, which was six million doses for three million people coming in the. All right, it is 12.25. We have just uh, lost Dr. Brett Belchez, uh, ER physician, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, Global News Radio medical expert. Going to take a quick break here anyway. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. With uh, First Ministers set to meet this week to discuss uh, funding and COVID-19 efforts, including vaccination and distribution, the Canadian Pharmacists Association is calling for a coordinated strategy to ensure that uh, health professionals are ready to administer these vaccines when arriving to Canada. 
uh, and uh, obviously, much like with the flu shots, uh, uh, may be involved in all of this. Let's bring in Joel Walker, Director of Public Affairs for the Canadian Pharmacists Association, and with us now. Joel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. So, Joelle, what will the uh, role of the pharmacy be or the Pharmacies Association uh, when we finally do start to get a vaccination trickling in? Any idea what the role of the pharmacy will be here? Well, undoubtedly, I think it's going to be an important role that pharmacists play. To give you sort of a comparator, because you raised the flu shot a few seconds ago, um, every year about 30% of Canadians get their flu shots um, across the country. Hopefully this year, I think it's going to be more than that because we saw that those huge surge in demand. But approximately like 30 to 40% of Canadians get theirs. And that's a huge undertaking every year. Like everybody needs to play a huge part in it, pharmacists, public health c- clinics, physician offices, it requires a lot of planning. And so if we're thinking about, you know, all of a sudden we're needing to immunize almost the entire population and do it twice because most of these vaccines are requiring sort of double doses, um, you know, we're going to need everybody to play their part. And so we, of course, um, assume that pharmacists are going to be playing an important role at some point in the campaign. So has there been any discussion about this uh, up until now? And, and, and I guess is this, is this a, a federal situation? Is that who you're dealing with at this point? So I think that's part of the issue is that, you know, um, the, the, the vaccines are going to be delivered provincially, um, as many other health services are. But it is, uh, again, it is the first sort of mass campaign that we're ever doing on the scale at a national level. So our conversations are happening both at the federal level and provincial levels with our partners in, in, a, in each province. The plan sounds like they're all sort of kind of taking shape now. Um, and it's uh, good news to hear that the prime minister is going to be meeting with his colleagues um, from across the country to discuss it. But having a bit of a coordinated strategy is really important for this. And we had a lot of lessons learned from this year's flu campaign. It was a bit of a dry run or a dress rehearsal, if you will, for how things are going to happen across the country. And the experience of Canadians was different in different provinces, depending on where they live. Um, In Alberta, for example, pharmacists uh, administered about 80% of flu shots across the province, which is huge. Uh, And that's because they had an allocation strategy that was determined by their province that that, um, provided pharmacists with the supply that they needed to meet the demands of their patients. If you compare it to in Ontario, where we are now, um, the Ontario government um, allocated um, flu shots uh, you know, to pharmacists, to public health clinics, and to, to physicians' offices a bit differently. And what we found was that um, the allocations were not as, um, uh, you know, didn't, there wasn't enough in pharmacy to meet the demand of, of Ontarians. So having sort of a more coordinated approach across the country would be very helpful. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, the flu shot, there was, there, there was plenty of those, it appears, uh, this not so much. These are the COVID-19 vaccinations, uh, we understand are just trickling in, uh, or will be through January, uh, in February, March and, and such. So are you, how concerned are you where, uh, you, you, we know how difficult it was just coordinating this with flu shots, which for the most part, there were enough of how difficult is it going to be to, to do all of this? when the distribution seems a little unclear at this point. Well, I don't want to minimize how difficult it, it will be. It's going to require a lot of careful planning. The sooner that it can be done, the better. Having different strategies for how vaccines are, are provided to targeted groups um, early on is going to be important. Um, for example, um, different provinces may decide who to vaccinate uh, differently. 
Um, the federal government's provided some recommendations, you know, people who live in long-term care homes, for example, or people who come in con- close contact with people in group um, home settings uh, should be prioritized. And then they talk a little bit about um, people who are kind of essential to the, um, you know, to fighting COVID-19. And that can include a ra- wide range of, you know, health professionals to people who work in um, essential workplaces like grocery stores or in food manufacturing plants. Um, and so the provinces are going to be determining who gets access to those sort of in a priority way. And having kind of that, colla- you know, that collaboration, that coordination across the country will be really important to communicate uh, to people so that, you know, you don't have people in Alberta saying, well, hold on a second. Um, you know, what about, you know, my, my colleagues here, or my friends here in, in, in Saskatchewan or BC are, are being immunized, but I'm not. Um, and, and so it does certainly help to have a little bit more of that um, that cohesive communication so that um, there's clarity around the country and how to and how to start planning for that. Give us an update on the flu shot. What did we learn from that? What's the situation uh, now? Is it is it relatively easy for for Canadians to get a flu shot now? Every year, it's it's it, you know it's a good problem to have. Every year, we're encouraging more and more Canadians to get their flu shot, and this year, uh, that certainly did happen. More Canadians wanted to get theirs because they saw it as an important part of staying healthy this year, um, and to making sure that they're reducing their risk of getting the flu. Um, and governments did anticipate that. So did pharmacies. They anticipated that surge in demand, but. Um, you know, of course, it, it, it is always a really difficult process to manage um, just because uh, also similar to, flu, to to COVID vaccines, we don't get our, our entire flu supply at the same time. Um, so people were kind of showing up to their pharmacies and asking for vaccines and um, having to book appointments. And uh, sometimes, it, you know, people had to wait a little bit longer than they had done in previous years because the demand was so high. That, that does provide some learnings for how to how to administer COVID vaccines, um, because again, to your point, they're, they're starting to trickle in maybe at the end of this year, then sort of getting some of the first batches in January and February, and then um, as sort of we progress, we'll be getting more and more of the supply. So it's a little bit about how to figure out who, how do you identify those targeted populations and how do you make sure that they're getting vaccinated um, and, and being clear on where they're, they're going to get vaccinated. There's also the really important thing that we've been talking about, which is um, how different vaccines have different storage requirements. Again, right. that's a huge one to coordinate across the country. Some of the other vaccines that we haven't heard as much about recently, like you know Pfizer and Moderna, seem to be sort of the two, the two that will arrive the soonest. Um, but some of the others might not have sort of those ultra frozen cold chain requirements. So how do you sort of allocate the right flu? Sorry, the right COVID supply to the right folks. Um, in the right setting to make sure that um, we're using the infrastructure that exists already and, and we're providing the infrastructure that's needed um, for the, those vaccines that are going to be arriving in Canada. So who will be giving these initial shots? Because it will probably be a while before we have enough that it makes it to the pharmacy level. Is that accurate? I, that's sort of the question we're, we're wondering, we're asking ourselves, because that also helps with planning. Um, you know, I'm seeing some stories down from the, the United States that some of the pharmacy chains are ramping up quickly their sort of hiring just to make mm-hmm. sure that they can keep up with the demand uh, for, for COVID. And that happens um, with the flu as well. So I don't think there's been a lot of clarity uh, yet from uh, different provinces or even the federal government as to where those initial flu shots, uh, sorry, those COVID shots, pardon me, are, are going to be administered. And so that that adds to the complexity in planning 
Um, but you're right, I think probably um, pharmacies will be involved in sort of the, the larger massive scale of, of immunization that's going to start a little bit later down down the road. What do you think the chances are of the pharmacies uh, using or, or administering these vaccines that have to be required storage in, in quite low temperatures? I understand the Oxford vaccination, not quite uh, as fragile in that sense. It's a little easier to uh, logistically to transport and such. Would it be something like that that the pharmacies are more involved in? Or does it get to the point where obviously all these places have to start ramping up refrigeration as well? Well, that's you know, we don't know yet how many of these vaccines are going to be approved. We know that a number of them are sort of in the pipeline, and we, we, we're not clear yet on uh, which ones are actually going to make it through the approvals process. So, you know, it is conceivable that the vast majority of, of, of the COVID vaccines may require some kind of frozen and ultra-frozen storage. And that, uh, that infrastructure doesn't exist in most places right now. The federal government certainly purchased some of it for storage. Uh, but most physician offices, public health clinics, or pharmacies have some a level of refrigeration, but not that sort of minus 80 degree um, refrigeration re- refrigerator. So we, you know, if that's going to be the majority of the vaccines that are going to be approved in Canada, then we definitely need to also think a little bit about the infrastructure that's going to be needed um, to deliver these. You know, public health clinics. So, like the average pharmacy. Up. The average pharmacy wouldn't have uh, infrastructure in place, even even a small infrastructure in place, to have something to that temperature. Would would they? So that's right. So the they have refrigeration capacity for sure. sort of the average thing, but this is we're talking minus eighty, and so that doesn't yeah. exist in the the majority. But it doesn't exist in physician offices either, or in public health clinics either. That's a good point. Um, how big of a problem does that pose? I mean, I understand that it's frozen, and then. Uh, there's a certain period there where it, it thaws and it, it's it, it, as it gets ready to use. What can you tell us about that process? Anything? The pharmaceutical distribution chains that we have right now in Canada is actually very sophisticated. In many cases, it can actually um, be delivered. Many, many medications can be delivered next day. So there is sort of a, an existing infrastructure system in place that that works. And so it's going to be important for folks who are planning to integrate that into the process. The other thing that, you know, when we talk about these public health clinics, that's important to keep in mind is um, location and convenience for access for people. Um, you know, in many rural and remote areas, pharmacies are often the only sort of healthcare center that exists in those communities. Um, if we're talking about having to administer not one but two dosage, being near um, each community is really important to make sure people are compliant in getting their second doses. Um, pharmacies have really sophisticated systems uh, to manage all of that. And so um, these are all the sort of the, the planning that, that needs to happen. And we're really encouraging the provinces, the provincial governments, as well as the federal government to work together with healthcare providers to, to make sure that there's a clear communication uh, plan in place and that um, everybody sort of is, knows when to anticipate uh, vaccines and the timelines and what they might need to be able to, to scale up that, that whole campaign. But you certainly are expecting to be part of the distribution chain once the uh, we, we have enough supply coming in. We don't see how we wouldn't be. I mean, yeah, certainly yeah. we just don't see how Canada could really uh, ramp up that capacity. Again, if the flu shot is any sort of um, indicator of how right. it needs to work, you need to have everybody involved, certainly pharmacies, physicians, uh, public health nurses, um, uh, just to be able to meet sort of that demand and uh, the capacity that's going to be required for for something of this scale. 
What is the Pharmacist Association learning from COVID-19? It seems, you know, many thought at the beginning of all of this, oh, can't wait for it to get back to normal. Now we realize that there's certainly a new normal when we come out the other end of this. Uh, how is this, how is this uh, challenged and changed your business? It's interesting because at the beginning of COVID-19, when most of the country sort of went into lockdown, there's a few services that remained open, and pharmacies is one of them, uh, just because they're so essential, both in terms of access to medications. But it's also important because um, pharmacists are providing uh, health advice to patients all the time. So uh, certainly, it's it's definitely put a lot of um, focus on the amazing services that pharmacies are offering. Um, and and when they've remained open and others have closed, uh, it's put a spotlight on, on on how important it is to have access to pharmacies across the country. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of services that are now taking or happening in pharmacies just because of their convenience, because pharmacists are experts, and they also see their patients more often than, you know, other health professionals. Uh, and COVID has put another sort of spotlight on, on how important they are uh, in their communities. We certainly have seen how doctors have adapted and, and started virtual uh, visits and, and this sort of thing. Are there systems being put in place here that you can say that you can see sticking after COVID nineteen? I think that's going to be a really important question for sure across the country and uh, even in pharmacies. Being able to access a pharmacist virtually, being able to to call in when you have medication questions as opposed to going in in person is an important one. Uh, for both being able to protect yourself from exposure and also, uh, you know, uh, protecting pharmacy staff as well. Uh, Those types of services. We've also seen, you know, pharmacies really had to step up a lot in terms of having, you know, increasing delivery services to um, people who are perhaps seniors who don't have the same mobility or who needs to stay home and to self-isolate. So that's another uh, service that that pharmacists have really uh, invested in. Uh, you know, often at their own cost as well, because they offer these services either for free or at a very low cost for people. Um, So it it has changed, I think, practice a little bit. It's been, it's a, you know, double-edged sword sometimes. It's, you know, people, the healthcare system has managed to change a lot during this, just to being able to accommodate um, COVID-19. So hopefully some of these new practices are going to stick around because it's been very beneficial to patients. Uh, what do you say to those out there listening who are feeling some anxiety and, and fear in regard to all of this uh, and perhaps support they can get from their local pharmacies? Always speak to your pharmacist. Um, they are there to help. They are there to guide you, um, particularly this year, you know, uh, when you're not sure if you have a flu or you have a cold, a simple cold, or you are perhaps worried about having COVID-19, we certainly encourage you to pick up the phone and call your pharmacy and ask those questions, uh, as well as some of the other existing services uh, that happen. But always speak to them, especially if you have medication questions. Uh, You know, it's important for people to continue to take their medications, um, you know, even though they they may be challenged by, you know, just the fact that they're uh, there's so much going on, but make sure you continue to take your medications um, because uh, it's not because we're just focused on COVID-19 that, uh, you know, people aren't having their own uh, health challenges uh, that uh, that predate COVID-19. Are you concerned people are shying away from going into a pharmacy or going to the doctor and nobody wants to go anywhere? You know, if you go out, you might catch something. Are you concerned about that? We did see some trends early on of people who may not have been refilling their prescriptions or who might have uh, perhaps not gone to uh, their doctor's office to get a prescription. That was certainly a trend that we were concerned about early on. As things have reopened across the country, certainly, and people have adapted and started to kind of go back to normal, uh, we think that that's that's, uh, 
that's going in a positive direction. But certainly uh, early on uh, in the first you know few weeks and months of March and April, um, everything was so shut down that uh, folks just weren't uh, thinking about some of their other health needs. Uh, and that's why um, you know we're encouraging people now. Don't you know? Don't forego your 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 physical, your annual physical. Speak to your physician. Uh, make sure you're talking to them about um, you know your health needs. Talk to your pharmacist, and and you know uh, health professionals are going to make sure that people have the care that they need uh, into this what what is now seeming like a, a long second wave ahead of us. <laughs> Very true. Uh, Joelle Walker is with us, Director of Public Affairs for the Canadian Pharmacists Association, talking about how your local pharmacist uh, could or may be involved in the distribution of a COVID-19 vaccination. Joelle, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How has the pandemic impacted science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM courses? Uh, all when this, uh, it seems with the pandemic, more and more kids are becoming more interested in what is going on. Have we been doing enough over the years uh, to get kids into the STEM courses? It seems what uh, has been happening is if you're not really excelling in those a uh, few core subjects, then you're considered as someone who wouldn't be interested in this type of business uh, or in this type of career. Is this really the way to go, or should we be doing more to encourage uh, more kids to get into uh, into uh, STEM courses as opposed to just pushing them away from it if they don't have uh, a strong math or a strong uh, science mark at this point? To talk more about all of this, let's bring in uh, Professor Cynthia Gow, uh, chemistry professor at the University of Toronto, co-founder of Peb- uh, Pueblo Science, and is with us now. Cynthia, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm good, Scott. Thank you. What is you? Pueblo Science? Okay, so Pueblo Science is a charitable organization uh, that's been in operation for 10 years, where our goal is to bring science literacy to, to everyone uh, with a concentration on youth in low-resource uh, communities. But, it, but it's for everyone. Do we discourage kids at a very young age from getting into STEM uh, courses if they're not extremely strong in these areas? Of course not. I think... I think everybody should let, you know, STEM is, is a foundational knowledge. Everybody should have a basis, uh, basic knowledge of STEM, just like a basic uh, knowledge of writing and re- reading and, and other things. Because even if you don't go into a STEM uh, field as a professional, you know, you, you're going to be one day making decisions uh, as, uh, as a voter. And so everybody has to learn some foundational knowledge. And we should make sure that, that everybody gets a chance. Because STEM is about understanding the world around you. Uh, I've talked to uh, uh, other uh, educational experts in the past. And, uh, y- you know, it seems uh, the trend of late in the last several years is, is, is trying to direct kids at an early age into one area or another. I- is that a positive thing? Because, again, from what it, some have said, they've, they, they've noticed that students have perhaps backed away from uh, perhaps some of these courses because they're not their strongest suit, whereas these people can still be real contributors to this industry even though this necessarily isn't one of their strongest courses it's still something that uh that they can evolve around well i'll tell you from my experience going through school and from teaching a lot of of students sometimes people don't develop until much later when they actually see the connection i mean there's a spark that one sometimes get lit up later in life 
I've seen that a lot through university. You know, some kid is like failing first year, second year, and then third year they take a course that really grabs them and they, they just shine. So it's, it's really not right to stream people so young. And, uh, you know, it, it even can be, as you just said, our interests have changed. I remember being a kid, and uh, I used to find history incredibly boring. And then the older I got, and especially in my senior grades, as, as you said, you'd take something that just lit a spark underneath you and, and, and aroused that curiosity, and off you go. Our, 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 our minds do change quite a bit during that period, don't they? That's, that's definitely true. And, and what we therefore have to do is make sure that all our people are from, from uh, the ground up are exposed to, to the different options. And then one day something will click on somebody and then we should be ready then to give that person the opportunity to, to focus once they find where they're going to go. How do we get or keep kids interested in these courses? Well, um, funny you should say that, but you know, sometimes the problem, science is hard, right? It's, it's a challenging thing to teach, mm-hmm. in part because it's hierarchical. If you miss on, uh, if you miss day one, sometimes you can't do day two anymore because, you know, you need the first uh, knowledge, you build on it. And, uh, but however, if you think about it, anything that's worthwhile is hierarchical. I mean, you can't enjoy a game of basketball until you learn how to dribble and to run and to pass. Mm. But what we need to do is to make sure that when kids are doing the basics, they get to see where it's leading so that they can see there is actually a, a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to be able to play great basketball if I just practice every morning. And science is no different. And is it so, different now? Sorry, go ahead. And, and so we, we have... we. As educators, we're always trying to figure out how to make things interesting. And with Pueblo Science, our approach is that it better be always hands-on because science is about what's around you. We should make sure you understand that whatever we're teaching you is about, you know, the thing you find in the kitchen, that you can actually relate to it. Uh, Is technology and the way kids have embraced technology, is this helping them understand more? Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. And I'm speaking now from a, a mother yeah. of a 12-year-old. Who no, I hear you. Been trying to do things with him. And the problem is the technology, you know, when they play with the game, it's very quick. The rewards are very quick. Yeah. And then I, that, I try to teach him electronics. And, you know, it takes forever to just make that light bulb, that little light blink. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. So, so we have to understand, you know, we may have to, to figure out how to really... Uh, make sure they understand there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to be able to make that game one day, but in the meantime, it will take us several months to actually just build your skills. So in other words, uh, get used to not having immediate gratification. Uh, that's right. And the question is how to do that. And I don't have the answer yet. And I'm, I'm always experimenting on what to do. And as I said, I have a 12-year-old guinea pig in my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so how has this uh, global pandemic changed the way people and maybe even students look at STEM uh, uh, research and such? Has this drawn more attention to it? Yeah, so there's, uh, the, the bad part about it is because they, we cannot do labs. It's very hard to, be, uh, to keep distancing when you're in a lab. Right. So the labs have closed down. And, and so kids are less engaged from that end. And, and this is why uh, Pueblo Science actually have mounted several um, videos to actually encourage teachers or parents or kids to use the things around their house to do experiments. That's our substitute to having a real laboratory. 
Uh, and on February 6th, we're going to have an activity where we're shipping out little kits uh, so that kids can actually do a Zoom call with us and we'll, we'll go through some experiments. So because we need to have them engaged from that end. Uh, the good part about it is you can see that uh, uh, STEM professionals or STEM education is always in the news right now as we think about the vaccine, the, the therapeutics, and even the healthcare workers. So kids are actually, maybe, <laughs> I'm hoping, seeing the mm. connection about the STEM and the jobs of a STEM professional, for example. I was reading in the news the, uh, earlier that... Um, the number of applicants to medical school in the U.S. has increased enormously, and most of them wanting to go into infectious diseases. So obviously, they all want to be Dr. Fauci. Yeah, uh, so yeah. This role modeling is actually probably becoming more visible right now as they see the need for, uh, for this, not, not just healthcare, right? Because So I'm in the field where we're trying to understand the chemistry to, to kill viruses at surfaces. So our sanitation experts are also uh, strongly grounded in STEM. So this, this is careers that, that uh, are being uh, um, uh, shown our, to, to the students these days. This is also the first crisis of this generation, the first time that we've ever been faced with this sort of thing. So I'm sure there's lots of students out there that never even had thought of this sort of thing. That's right. Uh, in fact, no, I think nobody except for the few healthcare professionals never thought that this could happen. And in fact, uh, well, of course, when we went through the SARS-1 many years back, uh, you know, that didn't last for long. So we maybe were a bit mm-hmm. too complacent now. And then this hit. What would you say to parents uh, that are out there and have young kids that are thinking of opting out of STEM courses that are perhaps having some problems and saying, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to excel in this field anyway, so I'm going to opt out. What, what would you say to those parents? Well, I, I, again, I go back to my point that this is just basic knowledge, right? When you're going STEM in grade school all the way to high school, I think this is knowledge that are core to our existence as humans because you're going to be voting one day as to whether we should ban something or other or use what chemical here or there. I mean, so even just the decision on how you're going to clean your kitchen, you have to be able to, you know, if you can read the chemicals, you can make an informed decision, so I think uh, whether you're going to be in a STEM field or not, that's a background knowledge, just as I think people should learn uh, the, the most important uh, works in history and in literature. That, that's all our, our background. So don't, don't quit it. But the other thing I'd say is uh, you don't want to limit your options, right? Uh, it's, it's too early to make decisions of what you should not do. I think that's a very valid point, and especially in today's world where, you know, we're asking kids to make these decisions, you know, on what they want to do for their career and the rest of their lives, and, and you know, most of them are going to change jobs and change direction probably every five or seven years anyway. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about... Uh, students and the impact on STEM courses that the uh, global pandemic has had and how uh, more parents should be encouraging their kids to stick with uh, STEM courses as long as they possibly uh, can. Cynthia, you, know, we, you wanted to, uh, you were chatting about how it's important for students to have a broad foundation and not limit themselves as uh, to what the future holds simply because who knows what direction they're going to go in, you know, one, two, five, ten years from now. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, uh, 
um, the way the job situation has actually changed, I think the generation of my grandparents, you know, people work for a company for until they retire. Yeah. Uh, right now, even even big companies, they can change their directions. Right? And so you never know what will be important in your job uh, in the next little while. But also you don't know what you'll be interested in. It's great to have the option to know that you can move to, to something. And, and so I basically encourage all students, even at university, to, to acquire a good, uh, broad foundation that will allow you not to be limited in your future. It was funny. We were all sitting around, uh, my family sitting around the dinner table uh, over the weekend, and we were having this very discussion, oddly enough, and it started with this. Um, my son had, there was a candle lit on the uh, table, and my son said, watch this, and he blew the candle out and then quickly held a lighter, uh, like a barbecue lighter thing, above the candle about an inch or two, and he lit it, and he watched the flame go back down to the candle, uh-huh. and reignite and we all went whoa and then immediately my wife said can you explain what happened there what's the science behind that so it uh-huh. started a whole discussion and i think as you mentioned it's those sort of experiments it's those sort of little things that 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 ignite a person's no pun intended ignite a person's imagination when it comes to stem that's correct and in fact uh, i think that's what we really have to capture uh, all the time is the connection between the things that you're seeing right now and you can actually uh, you, you don't have to know and have memorized what happened but you can analyze it if you have a good foundational knowledge and it's such a power to know that oh if whether it's something like that magical candle or even a simple thing like you know my, my bathroom is clogged now what yeah. do I have in the house that I can use for actually helping me and, and doing it from, you know, reasoning out what you know. So what was the idea behind Pueblo Science? What was, the, what was, your, what was your motivation to start this? Well, you know, so I come from a remote island in the Philippines. And I've been in Canada for 25 years, but I originally from a remote island where there was no electricity and no running water. And, uh, and, up to now, we are about one hour from where my, my mother lives, there's still not, no electricity. So Pueblo Science really started by us basically saying, well, if we can just teach science to some of these uh, low-resource communities, maybe they can, uh, we can help them improve their lives themselves. It's not for us giving them charity, but it's for us giving them knowledge, and then they can improve a little bit. And I started by actually talking up to, to young kids. And then I realized, we realized then that it's the teachers that we have to reach so, because they have a bigger reach in terms of numbers, uh, number mm. of kids. And um, so in, I think, 2010, uh, I started building an entrepreneurship program at the University of Toronto. And uh, Mayro Salvador, who is the co-founder of Pueblo Science, uh, was in the program. And so we got to thinking about it, about how do we build a little nonprofit company that will actually bring science literacy to the people who need the most, where there's no resources really, so they have to understand science in the context of what's around them. And, and so we, we created little kits because we believe that it has to be hands-on learning. And so it started taking on from there that there's a lot of volunteers from University of Toronto among the students, my, uh, the graduate students primarily, on how to create these kits. 
And then every year we would go to the Philippines, uh, to the remote um, island where I grew up in other remote islands and ask the local people to assemble the teachers. So that's how it all got started. And, and the teachers really appreciated it because, you know, they really don't know uh, enough science to, to, to teach. In fact, you know, when we started, they basically said, well, the problem we can't teach because we, we don't have test tubes. Hmm. So we have to make them understand that, no, no, you don't memorize what's in the book. You really use, the test tube is just a container. You can use any container. Yeah, and, yeah. And so it, that, that was the start. And then, of course, we, we would do things here in Canada in our local school because my, my older kid, daughter was in school then. And then the kids locally would say, well, we, we would like to learn some of those tricks too because we were always doing some fun magic-type tricks. Then we would explain the science behind them. So, you know, it grew organically. And we get more and more student volunteers so we can expand uh, a lot of our activities. So that's, it, that's really the little story. It's a great idea. And who knows how many little scientists, budding scientists you have uh, spawned. How do we find out more about Pueblo Science? So we do have our, our website. It's pueblosciences.org, O-R-G. And we have a Facebook page on Pueblo Science. And we also have a YouTube channel, Pueblo Science. So if you want searches for Pueblo Science, you'll end up on these pages. Cynthia, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Um, thank you, Scott. And you, know, you too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been some interesting developments uh, in the case of the Huawei CFO and her extradition case to the United States. This sort of uh, broke at the end of last week. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and Reuters are citing unnamed sources in reports that uh, the Huawei CFO's lawyers, uh, U.S. lawyers, are negotiating with the U.S. Department of Justice to reach an agreement that would see the 48-year-old able to return to China in exchange for an admission of wrongdoing. And from what I understand, this really has very little to do with Canada. Uh, and, and, you know, many were saying what our options uh, were or are and, and whether we should even be, be uh, adhering to this extradition treaty, which, of course, we do with all of our allies. But this, from what it sounds like, doesn't even involve really Canada. It's a negotiation that's going on between China and the United States or certainly uh the uh, the Huawei CFO's lawyers. Let's bring in Ben Roswell, President and Research Director of the Canadian International Council, and is with us now. Ben, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for having me on the show. So what are your thoughts on these most recent developments? We know that uh, that the Huawei CFO is, is back in court today, but what can you tell us about what uh, what came out last week and in regard to some sort of deal between the U.S. and, and her lawyers? Well, it's... Um I think some caution is in order. We shouldn't uh, read too much into the negotiations uh, between the uh, Justice Department and the um, uh, the Huawei team. Um, not to count our chickens before our eggs are, are hashed. It's relatively normal for uh, major companies to negotiate with the Justice Department on these kinds of things. So the the fact that Meng Wanzhou has been invited into the courthouse uh, in Vancouver is not necessarily linked. I can certainly understand why we, we hope for there to be a resolution because this is out of Canada's hands. It's a, a judicial process being led by the United States. Uh, and if the United States decides to drop the charges or defer them or in in, a, in some other way um, uh, let Meng Wanzhou off the hook, then we'll follow suit with uh, uh, dropping the extradition. But it's... Uh, it's uh, it's really up to the Justice Department in the United States right now, not to Canada. 
It's interesting, Ben, because as soon as I heard of this, it piqued my interest at the end of last week. But you said don't read too much into this. Who initiated this? How would this have all started? Uh, well, it's initiated by the Justice Department of the uh, of the uh, of the U.S. They've got these thirteen charges against uh, against Huawei, um, and they're looking for some kind of resolution of the uh, um, of the issue. the The, the challenge here is that. Um, Huawei is not an independent company, right? It's, it's, it is the Chinese state. And yeah. there's some precedents to look at here. The Chinese state doesn't tend to look favorably on negotiating with American bureaucrats uh, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the Justice Department. There was a recent, recent uh, issue with HSBC, for example, where right. the Chinese government issued, you know, told HSBC they weren't to do business with the, with the Justice Department. So, uh, it's a relatively routine thing, and it's, there's no guarantee that it's going to produce a positive outcome. So would this have been the U.S. Justice Department reaching out to her lawyers to say, hey, can we resolve this in some way? Well, to her company. Um, or would it have been the other way around? Would it have been her lawyers saying, hey, where are we going here? I only have the Wall Street Journal um, reporting to to rely on here, but it looks like it was the U.S. Uh, it was the U.S. Justice Department that's uh, that's initiating. They're also reporting that um, Meng Wanzhou's initial reaction seems to be sort of negative. So another reason why I think we need to be a bit cautious right. uh, about this. I think so, our job as Canadians is to continue to enforce the rule of law and stay loyal to our uh, our requirements under the Expedition under the Extradition Act and uh, and to be as patient as possible. Um, even if we're all anxious to get Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig free. Yeah, because many many talked uh, in the past about how Canada could let all this go, but these negotiations that are going on, this has nothing to do with Canada. This is between yeah. the parties involved, correct? That's right, yeah. No, so why is this happening now? Do you think this is something to do? You said this is part of the normal process, I guess, as these cases move forward. You, you try to work something out and, and stay it, keep it out of court. But why do you think this is happening now? Do you, and does this have anything to do with the change in power in the United States? I had read somewhere or heard somewhere, I think, over the weekend that Donald Trump wanted to get this resolved before he exits office. Is that accurate? I don't have any uh, means to confirm that but when you get to the end of a uh, government as uh, you know the US administration is about to change hands it's not just the president it's uh, it's senior uh, officials all the way down like four or five levels below the president um, this has been a pretty big uh, pretty big issue for the for the Justice Department and so um, there's a, I think there's a natural tendency to try and advance things as much as possible before a big change of, uh, of leadership all the way down the top echelons of the uh, of the American government. I mean, it's uh, it can't be all that helpful for the American economy for there to be a major dispute with a with a huge uh, American, a huge Chinese firm. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other issues on the agenda with uh, 5G and and elsewhere. So um, presumably, some senior someone in the senior echelons of the Justice Department has calculated it might be in America's interest to try and reduce the workload or the, the docket of uh, the various cases that they're dealing so they can what, move on to other issues. Is this top of mind for Americans or even diplomats or, or politicians? I remember talking in the past uh, when this all first started and the situation with the two Michaels and that, and, and none of this really seemed to be playing out in the United States. How big a deal is this to the U.S.? I, uh, I don't think Meng Wanzhou is as much of a household name in the United States as 
as here in Canada because we're the ones uh, yeah. paying the price because of the captivity of the two Michaels as a, as a result of this. But the relationship with China is very much top of mind. It might be the one issue on which um, there's continuity between the Trump administration and the yeah. Biden administration. They're both very tough on China. Um, now, this is only one of you know Huawei is only one of many files in that uh, in that whole relationship. Um, but there's uh, there's going to be every bit as much um, confrontation and hostility in the relationship between the U.S. and China under uh, President Biden, as there has been under President Trump, how that actually plays in terms of different files and which which issues the uh, U.S. and the Justice Department will want to press forward on uh, and which ones they might want to divert attention away to, to other files is sort of difficult to predict. But that's probably what's happening is a, a sort of clearing of the decks in the Canada, in the, sorry, in the China-U.S. relationship as they, uh, as they move from one administration uh, to the next. That being said, Ben, is this something we can quickly whip out of the way before the term is over? I mean, as you said, you're not putting too much stock in any of this. Yeah, um, the uh, it's it's so beyond our uh, control as Canadians. The Canadian government itself, uh, I don't think, has any influence over over what the Justice Department of the United States decides uh, in this matter. That we can we can hope, um, but I I think also there's a risk in in being too hopeful if. Uh, if our hopes are dashed on this, as they have been many, many times on this uh, on this file, um, I think that might also produce some uh, some problems. I think the fundamental issues at stake here are the same: that you've got a belligerent Chinese government who breaks international law by abducting uh, foreign citizens for political purposes. You've got a Canadian government that's standing by the rule of law with its uh, with its extradition procedures at the request of uh, of a fellow treaty. Uh, signatory. Um, you've got one detain- detainee who is being treated very, very well uh, in Vancouver, living in a mansion uh, and having full access to her her, uh, her family and her friends and anyone she wants to, and two that are being treated absolutely abominably now 740 days into their, uh, mm. into their captivity. Um, it has been a millstone around the Canada-China relationship, and so I do think we're all anxious to remove that millstone. In my case, I'm hoping that we can then become tougher in our relationship with China once we've got this one really problematic issue resolved. There's a whole raft of issues on Xinjiang, Hong Kong, um, challenges to the international uh, to international norms that I think we need to be tackling with China. And the sooner we can get onto that, the better. But um, only with, with what we can control ourselves. So this all started with the Wall Street Journal and Reuters uh, citing unnamed sources that uh, lawyers for uh, the Huawei CFO and the U.S. Department of Justice are, are trying to reach an agreement in exchange for admission of wrongdoing. Why would that make it okay? Why would that free her? Because at the end of the day, the U.S. have charged her and want her in court. So now why would they be willing to negotiate a deal as long as she stands up and said, here's what I've done? Well, they're uh, trying to protect uh, precedents or to establish precedents about how uh, companies that operate in the United States uh, comply with American uh, American law. Because this is a essentially a Chinese state-connected company, 
um, those will be quite important precedents. So even having admission of guilt uh, or some acknowledgement of wrongdoing helps with uh, with precedents, even if penalties aren't applied in this case. It looks like the, according to that Wall Street Journal report, that what they're looking at is not just absolving Huawei and Meng, Meng Wanzhou of these uh, of these uh, charges, but deferring prosecution. Just saying that they're going to get to it later, but in the meantime, she can go back to China. And usually, a deferred prosecution, or often a deferred prosecution, ends up to drop uh, dropping the case. But you've protected the precedent in the meantime, so the Huawei's sort of on notice the next time, or whatever, whatever the next Chinese government-supported uh, enterprise. Um, Considering that she's uh, pleaded innocent in all of this, what's the likelihood of there being any admission of any wrongdoing, and where would that leave Huawei 5G? Well, that's where it looks like it's uh, this, whatever negotiations are underway with the Justice Department might fall apart, that um, China's quite reluctant to let its companies admit wrongdoing uh, in uh, in these sorts of situations. Um, so they might stand on principle you know they've stood on principle uh all along um refusing to uh undertake any of the measures that they they could have to resolve this dispute i mean the the fact that we're still talking about this uh detainee issue in december 2020 two years after it started um is entirely because of the chinese side uh refusing to take any opportunities to uh to resolve this satisfactorily and they might prove just as stubborn um as they go ahead, I mean, they, 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 uh, they're throwing their weight around as a country and don't want to have uh, the appearance of weakness. And they put that principle above the interests of the individual human beings involved. What does this mean for the future of Huawei in North America? Boy, it's hard to imagine Huawei ever, the reputation of Huawei ever uh, recovering yeah. from the appalling behavior of the Chinese government on, on behalf of this, uh, of this princess, essentially. That being said, is it struggling now? How are they doing now in Canada? Well, we're the last of the Five Eyes countries to take a decision on 5G, which is a, a major part of their commercial strategy. Um, and so that the, the fate of that hangs uh, in the balance. Uh, the, the company is certainly operating... Um, under greater greater constraints in uh, in Canada than it would have uh, otherwise. I mean, in other in other countries around the world, in other markets, Huawei is is, uh, is right up there, challenging some of the other big big tech firms. The sale of uh, smartphone units, for example, you don't see that nearly as much in Canada. And you got to think that some of the reasons that they haven't been as successful in the Canadian market um, is because of this dispute and because of the the, the poor reputation. Uh, of the company by being associated with the kidnapping of Canadians abroad. Ben Roswell has been with us, president and research director at the Canadian International Institute, or sorry, Council, uh, talking about an agreement uh, between the Huawei CFO and the U.S. Department of Justice. Ben, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.